welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a wonderful new show for you today. I'm here with Devin Nahr, Isaac Al-Hadef Professor of Sephardic Studies and Associate Professor of History and Jewish Studies at the University of Washington in Seattle. He's joining me to discuss his new book, Jewish Salonika, Between the Ottoman Empire and Modern Greece, published in 2016 by Stanford University Press. Devin, welcome. Thank you. Pleased to be here, Shira. Really delighted to be speaking with you today. Yes, I, I, it's, it's, it's really, I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. Well, and I have to ask you, um, I was really intrigued by your book on Salonika, um, since as you argue in the late 19th and early 20th century, it was really an important site in both Jewish history and the history of the modern Mediterranean. Why do you think that its importance has been relatively overlooked by scholars of both Jewish and modern history? I think one of the main reasons why Salonika has been overlooked is it sort of sits at a crossroads and in some ways has fallen between the cracks as a result of the major transformations of this precise period. So we go from a world that is relatively integrated within the Ottoman Empire that connects the Balkans, parts of North Africa, and the Middle East within the framework of the Ottoman Empire to a world that is more disjointed and disconnected and divided according to new national boundaries between different uh, states that have formed as well as new colonial regimes in North Africa and the Middle East. And so within that framework, uh, Salonika kind of um, no longer occupies a, a kind of central role. And the status of the city itself was, was, was marginalized. And that sort of reflected in the general scholarly and public um, lack of recognition or interest in the city. And what drew you to the history of the Jews of Salonika and how might that have shaped the research that you undertook? The immediate connection for me with Salonika is is really a personal and familial one. Um, my grandfather was born in Salonika, and it was a city that I'd heard about since I was a kid. Uh, various stories about the city, um, foods that I ate that had come from the city, and languages from the city that I heard growing up, principally Judeo-Espanol or Ladino, Judeo-Spanish, and to a lesser extent, um, a few Greek phrases here or there. But this was a world that was quite distant from me in many ways, even though I knew I was a part of it in some way. Um, But it was like a a part of my life, I would have to go to my grandfather's house or go and visit great uncles and great aunts of a a generation uh, or two removed from myself to get get a taste of that world. And I wanted to better understand the, not only the universe from which my family came, but also the ramifications of that world on me in, in, in the present. And I discovered that there were few opportunities available for me to really get a better sense of where that world, what that world was about um, in, in academic settings or even in my broader interactions in, in Jewish communal life in which, you know, I would say, uh, you know, I'm, oh, in college, for example, I would say, oh, my, my family is from, from Greece. In, in, a, in a Jewish student context, mm-hmm. you know, get blank stares or, uh, you know, or, uh, my, oh, my grandfather speaks Ladino again in, in lack of comprehension. Uh, I would go to the Jewish studies department and say, I'd like to learn about Sephardic Jews. I said, uh, well, we don't have such an opportunity. So <laughs> I, I decided that I'd like to create my own opportunity uh, my own opportunities. And so I began some reading on the side, really, that eventually turned into an independent project. 
as an undergraduate, and then I started learning the various languages. Uh, again, I was studying philosophy and American foreign diplomacy in Asia initially. So, uh, um, yeah, so it was quite a departure. But once I delved into this world um, and I, I was just so captivated and drawn to it, not only because I, I felt like I was discovering things about my, my own family, but also about this like lost universe of Jews, Christians and Muslims of the Ladino language. Um, and of a whole different constellation of political and uh, and cultural factors that seem to be completely wiped out from our contemporary consciousness about world history and civilizations. And let me ask you, especially when you were working on your graduate work and later the book, how do you reconstruct a, a lost community? What kinds of archives were you able to access? What kind of, you mentioned languages a bit. How did you actually go about compiling this information and telling this narrative? With great difficulty. Um, <laughs> you know, the, when I began my research, I wrote to the Jewish community of Salonika, the remnant of the Jewish community of Salonika. There are about a thousand Jews living in Salonika today. As compared to a hundred years ago, there were 90,000. And so it's a very small sliver of that community, uh, of that, of that population. And I said, I'm interested in, in learning more about my family in Salonika and more about the Jews, uh, the Jewish community prior to World War II. What resources do you have? And I received a letter, not an email. This was back in the days in which people wrote letters still, um, uh, saying that, uh, something to the effect of the fact that unfortunately the records uh, from before the war had all been confiscated by the Nazis and have been lost. And we do not have in Salonika records or materials that could reveal to us the history of our own families. And I was really distraught by this. Um, but I was still uh, convinced that there must be some other way to access uh, the stories and the past of this community. And when I was able to determine was that not that the archives of the Jewish community of Salonika from before the war had been completely lost and destroyed, but rather that they had been confiscated by the Nazis and dispersed all across the globe. And so I wound up spending a number of years traveling to different parts of the world in search of the archives of the Jewish community of Salonika. And I discovered them. Uh, some had wound up in New York. Uh, some wound up in Jerusalem, some wound up in the former Soviet secret military archive in Moscow, and I had to get special permission to go there. And some of that material uh, I wound up finding when I went to Saronica and asking around, trying to see if maybe there were some materials that were not part of the official uh, records of the community that I could get a hold of. And after asking the president of the community and lower uh, officials in the, in the in the community, all of whom could not point me to materials. One day, I asked basically the one of the the maintenance people there, and I asked him, you know, you know all of the inter ins and outs of the Jewish communal buildings here. Maybe you've seen some old papers. Um, really? There, and he said, of course, come with me, and we go to uh, one of the other Jewish communal communal buildings, and we go into the basement, and he opens up a storage space. And there are, uh, you know, caches of of correspondence and documents and archives pertaining to the, the, the Jewish world of Salonika prior to the Second World War. And these resources, 
wound up becoming the basis of my of my book. And can you give us a composite, especially during the period of your study, this late teenth or um, you know first half of the twentieth century? Who were the Jews of Salonika? Can you give us some profile of the community, demographic information? The Jews of Salonika have a very long-standing presence in the city. And it goes back to, to ancient times. Apostle Paul uh, preached in one of the synagogues in, in Salonika in the first century. But really, the, the, the Jewish community that develops in, in modern times, the focus of my book, really dates to the period after the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, in which many of those uh, Jews who leave Spain wind up settling in what was then the Ottoman Empire, uh, Salonika included. And uh, over the generations, Salonika becomes home to the largest Sephardic Jewish community in the entire region perhaps in the entire world. And at the turn of the 20th century, the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the period in which my book focuses on, there are about uh, 80 or 90,000 Jews in a city of 170,000 people. So they're around half or more of the residents of the city. And what's also unusual or distinctive about the Jews of Salonika at this time is that they could be found in every occupational and social strata of the city. So when you arrive in Salonika the, at, by ship, say, for example, the port workers and the stevedores were largely Jews and the customs official and the uh, people who would be selling you pumpkin seeds on the streets and shining your shoes. Uh, you go to the bank. You want to get a transaction. You want to uh, go to a, a market. Um, lawyers, uh, doctors, um, halva vendors. So Jews found themselves in every aspect of of this of the society in the city. Moreover, they also had a wide ranging sense of self government and autonomy. So the Jewish community of Salonika in the late nineteenth uh, century, in the Ottoman context, and even until World War II, really had many powers of uh, of self administration. So. The Jewish community ran uh, not only 60 synagogues that employed 250 uh, rabbis and chazanim and other religious functionaries, but also had a religious court, uh, a bet din, uh, a dozen Jewish schools and 20 Jewish philanthropic uh, organizations from a Jewish hospital and a medical dispensary to an old age home, a maternity ward and even a Jewish insane asylum. So the, the, the vibrancy and the uh, multiplicity of aspects of Jewish life in Salonika was really quite remarkable, even into the period um, leading up to the Second World War. Yes, I was really struck by um, a case that you made that just really, as we're seeing across other European nations, really dismantling formal Jewish institutions, especially those known as the Kahal, overseeing right. communal affairs. Salonika's Jewish community really had this very different Jewish experience. Um, so what other responsibilities or powers in the, in the daily lives of people um, was the formal capital J Jewish community <laughs> responsible for? <laughs> Well, the, the Jewish community, as some of the as some of Jews in the city thought of it, it was like a municipality or a state that basically an individual Jew's relationship with the community 
was very much similar to that individual Jew's relationship with the state. In other words, Jews thought of themselves as citizens, not only of the, of the country in which they lived, the Ottoman Empire or, or Greece, but also as citizens of, of the Jewish community. So what did that mean? So the Jewish community would, for example, uh, provide housing for the Im- impoverished members of its community, uh, organizing Jewish neighborhoods, but not only providing them with places to dwell, but also basically enabling those neighborhoods to operate on a day-to-day basis. So in order to, um, for example, deal with some uh, uh, deal with issues inside of the neighborhood, whether it was uh, sewage or whether it was lighting or electricity or paving uh, the side with the roads inside of the Jewish neighborhood, pl- providing uh, school and education and hygiene and coal and uh, and other kinds of daily needs. The Jews in those neighborhoods look to the Jewish community, not to the city and not to the state to fulfill those needs. And so this was pretty unusual insofar as, on the one hand, Jews are being told that they are citizens of their state, of the state in which they live, and they start to see themselves as citizens of the state, but they continue to be really invested and uh, inextricably linked to the Jewish community, in some cases, whether or not they wanted to be connected to the Jewish community. They didn't have an alternative. There was no, like, free civil society in which Jews could just assimilate into. By law, all Jews were members of the Jewish community. And who was really at the head of this Jewish community, the formal Jewish community? Well, there were a number of different sort of leading figures in the the Jewish community. Um, There was a democratically or quasi-democratically elected what was known as the uh, General Assembly, which was basically a miniature Jewish parliament that uh, male members of the Jewish community of a certain age and eventually um, those who there were originally some uh, wealth requirements to vote. But eventually um, all, all Jewish males could vote in, in nominating their representatives to this legislative body that would enact certain laws to govern the Jewish community. And that was run by a, what was known as the communal council, which was sort of the, the lay leadership of the Jewish community. But really, in some ways, the figurehead the symbolic representative of the Jewish community of Salonika, like Jewish communities in many other places in the world, and including the former Ottoman Empire, was the Chacham Bashi, was the chief, the chief rabbi. And the chief rabbi of, uh, of Salonika was really, in many ways, understood as the leader of the Jewish community, both with regard to the administration of the Jewish organizations and the maintenance of Jewish identity and communal uh, belonging, but also with regard to interactions with the state and with organizations and institutions abroad. And you really dedicate a lot of time to talking about how um, in this role of chief rabbi, it was often a battlefield for really claiming um, Jewish power and identity within the Salonika Jewish community. So how did this battle reflect those tensions and how, if at all, was it resolved? There were, at a certain time, uh, especially after World War I, there were 10 different Jewish political parties in Salonika. And as you could imagine, each of those groupings wound up having a slightly different or sometimes drastically different 
vision for what they wanted the Jewish community of Salonika to be. And since the chief rabbi was seen to be the figure to embody that really to be the face of the Jewish community and to represent how the Jewish community is to be understood both by their non-Jewish neighbors, by the state and by Jews across the globe. The Jewish, the, excuse me, the chief rabbi, as you mentioned, really became a lightning rod to express these different positions. So whether, for example, is the, is the Jewish community, is it supposed to be really a European community or is it supposed to be an Eastern community? And it, factions argued for different approaches and answers to that question. Should the chief rabbi be a native Salonican or Ottoman-born Jew who knew Judeo-Spanish and was educated in the yeshiva? Or should the chief rabbi be a European-born and educated, uh, more of a diplomatic figure who had a PhD from a European university and could speak many languages and knew not only religious and Talmudic studies, but also literature and philosophy and sciences. And so that became one of the main dividing parts, dividing points among the different factions uh, within the Jewish community. And there were also elements within the Jewish population, especially Jewish communists, which was another faction that argued that there should be no chief rabbi at all. And so we have in the figure of Rabbi Tzvi Koretz, the last Salonika chief rabbi before World War II, he really appears in your study as a very controversial figure. How does he embody some of these tensions within Salonikan Jewry in the years both immediately before and after World War II? Koretz is a Polish-born German-educated rabbi, and when he is hired in 1933, this is after a period of 10 years in which the different factions within the Jewish community could not come to a consensus and agree on a figure to be their chief rabbi. So he enters into a completely different Jewish cultural environment in the former Ottoman Empire, now Greece, where there are predominantly Judeo-Spanish-speaking Jews operating in a, in a very different political and cultural context. And he is brought in as a result of basically the victory of the faction within the Salonican Jewish community who wants to see their community as part of Europe and part of European Judaism, part of modernity and uh, outside and overcoming what was perceived at the time as their backwards, quote unquote, oriental milieu in which they had been part of in the Ottoman Empire. And so when Koritz arrives, he is charged with a whole variety of tasks trying to rejuvenate Jewish life in the city, which had been under a number of stresses since the city became part of Greece in 1912 and 1913, to reorganize the administration of a number of the Jewish, um, Jewish institutions in the city, to increase and improve relations with the Greek government. And he actually learned Greek very quickly, he knew a number of languages and was in some ways able to ingratiate himself with the, uh, with the Greek administration. But he remained in some ways perceived by certain sectors of the Jewish population as an ageno, as a foreigner, as an Ashkenazi in a Sephardic environment. And that those kind of perceptions and those tensions really come to a head 
during the German occupation of Salonika, which begins in 1941 and results in 1943 in the complete liquidation of the Jews of Salonika via their deportation to their deaths at Auschwitz-Birkenau in, uh, in the spring and summer of 1943. And Koritz becomes a very controversial figure in that context. And uh, actually, he is accused retrospectively of actually collaborating with the Nazis to help facilitate the destruction of the Jewish population of Salonika. And the, the, the destruction of the Jewish population of Salonika can be pinned on Koritz and justified and explained as a result of him actually being a foreigner, being a speaker of German, and um, and trying to get a, a good deal for himself and his family at the expense of his flock. And uh, the story that Koritz sort of turned over the Jews of Salonika to the Nazis wound up being very salient in the post-war years because it helped the surviving Jewish population explain the devastating fate of their own community. And it also helped the surrounding Greek society explain what happened to the Jews. In other words, the surrounding Greek society say, we were not at blame at all here. There's no responsibility on us as the, as the Greek Christian society um, because we just watched by as the Jews destroyed themselves. Their own leader destroyed them. Um, and this became a very powerful mythos that continues to exist in, in, in Greece today, whereas in reality, there were many other compounding factors at play, uh, not only some tensions within the Jewish population, and I think a general ignorance and a, a, a lack of recognition rather than maliciousness that motivated Koritz to, in some ways, go along with the German orders. But also, it obfuscates the fact that many Greek Christians profited from and exploited the uh, destruction and dispossession of Salonika's Jews. And we'll see some more of that in a few minutes. But before turning to that, I also wanted to ask you about another battleground in Salonika Jewry before World War II, which is um, the arena of schools and education for Jewish children. Right. And you said that this might even be a larger battleground for identity um, than even the role of the chief rabbi in determining how that first generation of Jews raised within Salonika Greece would relate to both the state and the Jewish community. So why in particular did the Greek language, for example, become an area for contestations over Jew Jewish Greek identity? The way that the Greek state and Greek nationalism develop in the 19th and into the 20th century is much like other nationalisms in Europe that are trying to consolidate the sense of the nation, binding people together by a shared sense of political loyalty, but also a shared history, a shared culture, a shared language, and in many contexts, uh, eventually shared race, shared religion, and, uh, and, and, and shared culture. And, uh, for the, in the case of the Jews of Salonika, who, uh, cannot really claim Greek, uh, ethnicity or uh, a Greek blood, many of them aren't even interested in doing so. One of the main ways that they see and are pushed by the Greek state to transform themselves and think of themselves as part of the Greek, modern Greek nation and modern Greek, Greek experiences by speaking the Greek language which is going to be perceived as the glue 
to bind together the various populations that make up Greece, not only the 90 plus percent of the population that are Greek Orthodox Christian, but also those, the small Muslim population and the law and the, and the Jewish population. It's through uh, engagement with that shared Greek language that the state and Jews believe that they can become part of Greece and they can become really uh, uh, Greek Jews. And so how does one learn a language? It becomes very difficult for the older generations who have completed their schooling in Ottoman times or had very minimal schooling to begin with to learn a new language at age 40, 50, 60. And so really they look to the Jewish youth, to the youngsters in school as the as really an experiment, as a laboratory, uh, uh, the schools as a laboratory where they can try to transform the uh, the children of the last generation of Ottoman Jews into the first generation of Greek Jews, and they see the acquisition of the Greek language as integral to this process. And so Greek language instruction is introduced into the Jewish communal schools, which are run by the Jewish community as part of its self-governance. And then eventually the Greek state gets more involved in instituting new schools that are going to be run by the state but specifically for Jewish children, and then general Greek state schools, which will open their doors uh, to uh, to Jewish students as well, all trying to inculcate them in uh, in the new ideas of what the Greek nation was supposed to be about, but principally through the Greek language. And again, certain factions within the Jewish community are going to think that this is a great idea, those who advocate for integration, the uh, so-called uh, liberals or moderates, but other factions within the Jewish community are going to put up a little bit more of resistance. Um, Jewish socialists, for example, continue to see Judeo-Espanol, Judeo-Spanish as the language of the working class, the language of the people, and they want to see that language uh, continue to be developed. Those who are more European integrated want to see French really emerge as mm. the primary language. And those who are Zionists... And those who are more traditionally oriented, but for different reasons, want to see Hebrew at, preserved at the center of the of the Jewish uh, the Jewish curriculum in those schools. And so, again, the school becomes, as you mentioned, a really key battleground over not only the Jewish future in Salonika, but also the cultural and li- linguistic form that Jewish identity would uh, would constitute in in modern Greece. And so I want to ask you, really going from thinking about the city's future through educating the children to thinking about the city's past. And I was really surprised, but actually quite pleased to see that the um, the Jewish historians of Salonika really receive a lot of attention in your book. So what drew you to their endeavors and how might their work help us better understand the ways in which Jewish Salonikans understood their city's place in history? I think one of the one of the things that drew me to the intellectuals was in reading general Jewish history, uh, historical studies, and noticing that really when when we speak about and think about Jewish intellectuals and Jewish writers and Jewish historians, that really Jews who come from the Ottoman realm, those writing in Ladino, were completely absent from those studies. Intellectual history was completely um, uh, deleted from uh, not only the marginal the treatment of Sephardic Jews to begin with, but with even in there, very little attention to uh, Jewish intellectuals from the Ottoman realm. And 
I became very intrigued to see, well, were there, first of all, Jewish intellectuals in the Ottoman realm? And what did they have to say about their situation in, a contempor- in their, the contemporary situation? But also, how did they situate their present within a broader trajectory of the past and looking toward the future? And so that led me to discover that actually Jewish history, as you mentioned, wound up becoming a a central component uh, that preoccupied a number of Jewish intellectuals in Salonika who saw the composition, the development, the articulation of historical narratives about themselves, not only as a way to talk to Jewish intellectuals in, in, in Europe, um, by placing their own story within a broader kind of European or global story of Jewish history, but also as a way to talk to their surrounding environments, as a way to show that Jews belonged in the city in which they were living. So uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, for example, while Salonika was still part of the Ottoman Empire, Jewish intellectuals devoted a lot of attention to trying to show that Jews belong not only to Salonika, but to the Ottoman Empire. So they promoted a kind of Ottoman Jewish romance that Jews had been welcomed to the Ottoman realm in 1492, and they continued to belong and thrive within that context more than four centuries later, and that they should continue to play a role in Ottoman society moving forward. Now, that narrative, it turns out to be completely useless. Once <laughs> Salonika becomes part of Greece, actually, it becomes dangerous for Jews to go around saying, yes, we are very close relations with the Ottoman Empire, because that would signify that they are uh, expressing their allegiance to really the enemy of one of the enemies of the Ottoman state, which was the Ottoman, excuse me, of the Greek state which was the Ottoman Empire and subsequently Turkey. So Jewish intellectuals, especially after World War I, exert a lot of time trying to reframe the Jewish narrative of Salonika to situate, again, themselves within the city, but also to emphasize that their presence and participation in the city of Salonika was inextricably linked to the history of Greece. And so they rewrite the story of Jewish history in Salonika. No longer does their story begin in 1492, but they bring it back to the era of antiquity. They bring it back to the era of Alexander the Great, to the era of Apostle Paul. And they tell the story of Jews participating in Greek society through the Byzantine era into Ottoman times and into the present. And they argue that just as Jews played an integral role in the development of Salonika, that the apogees and perigees experienced in the city itself, Jews were there the whole time. So should they be able to continue to carve out a space for themselves as Jews and as citizens of Greece in their city. So let me ask you, when thinking about urban space um, in Salonika and how Jews engaged with um, the Greek state in the Antwerp period, um, you go into a detailed description of the significance of the Jewish cemetery, Beit Ahayim, and explore how its transformation and then 1942 demolishment speak to both as you describe the power and the powerlessness of the Jews of Salonika at different points in time. What do you mean by that? The, the cemetery, the Bet became a real kind of um, 
a kind of lightning rod as well, a case study to explore the extent to which Jews would be able to position themselves and guarantee a place for themselves, literally a space for themselves in their city amidst these dramatic transformations, the end of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of modern Greece. And the power power and powerless component becomes very central because Jews, uh, Jewish intellectuals, again, including some of the figures that I just alluded to who are writing history, they go to the Jewish cemetery uh, and they find in the Jewish cemetery literally physically embodied evidence of their longstanding presence and literally the imprint of Jewish presence in the city. And this becomes extremely important because in the middle of World War I, there's a big fire that destroys much of the center of Salonika. Many of the Jewish institutions and synagogues are uh, reduced to ashes. And so the Jewish cemetery, which, by the way, was the largest Jewish burial ground in all of Europe with 350,000 graves covering a terrain larger than the size of 80 football fields, this cemetery becomes really the last uh, historical marker of the longstanding Jewish presence in the city. And so Jewish intellectuals and leaders, they argue that the Jewish tombstones that they speak, that they were piedras que hablan. And this becomes extremely important in the context, as you mentioned uh, in your question, uh, in the context of urban renewal and development that is reshaping literally the urban landscape of the city in the 19th and 20th century as the city expands especially in the wake of this fire, the Jewish cemetery suddenly becomes the center of what was supposed to become a, a modern Greek city. Can a Jewish burial ground become a central landmark in a Greek city? And Jewish leaders argue that yes, that, that yes, the Jewish cemetery should be preserved in the center of the city because it is not only a religious site that should be protected according to the principles of religious tolerance, but also because the Jewish cemetery constitutes a monument, not only of Jewish, but of Greek national patrimony. And the argument that they try to pitch to the Greek state representatives and to their neighbors is that this cemetery ought to be preserved because it documents not only Jewish presence in the region, but also their contributions to the larger Greek dynamic. And so it becomes a taste a taste a taste a, 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 a test case of whether <laughs> Jews and Jewish objects and artifacts will be able to be preserved in the context of modern Greece and ultimately the answer that is given to that question yes the the stones did speak but unfortunately few were willing or able to listen and in the context of the Second World War, at the initiative of the University of Salonika, the municipality, the, um, the Chamber of Commerce, with the supervision of the Director of Antiquities, the Jewish cemetery is completely demolished, and the tombstones are used for building materials across the city. Um, 
uh, and some of the remnants of that those tombstones can still still be seen today if you visit Salonika. And if you visit Salonika, you can go to the site where the Jewish cemetery used to stand, and you will find almost no trace of the site's previous use. But what you will find is the campus of the largest university in Greece and the entire Balkans, the university, the Aristotle University of Salonika. And until 2014, there was not even a marker or plaque that indicated what had what had sit under the campus for the previous uh, centuries. So do you feel like that story, especially of the demolishment of the cemetery, challenges the way that maybe scholars of the Holocaust should think about these roles that are often tossed around, those roles of collaborator and perpetrator? Well, what we see in this case is that in order to understand what happened to the Jews of Salonika during the Second World War, it's not only a story about Germans and Jews. It's really a story about how the interactions between Germans and Jews, between Nazi occupation forces and local Jewish populations are shaped by local dynamics. We see in some parts of Europe in which Jewish populations, excuse me, in which non-Jewish populations stood up against deportation orders or against treatment of Jews, there was some success in softening or postponing or ending those uh, that kind of treatment or, 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 or finding ways for Jews to be saved or escape. But in this context, in the context of Salonika, despite, I should add, the attempted intervention of the head of the Greek church in Athens, who argued that Greek Christian citizens should do everything that they everything in their power to prevent the deportations of the Jews of Salonika and sent a petition to the German occupation forces and to the Greek government to, uh, to advocate for this position. No Greek Christian intellectuals or leaders in Salonika signed, signed on to this. And they actually, uh, for the most part, either watched as anti-Jewish measures were implemented in Salonika or benefited from those anti-Jewish measures. Over 10,000 Jewish, uh, Jewish homes and several thousand Jewish uh, stores were uh, confiscated by the Nazis, and many of those properties were handed over to the local, local Greek Christians who were the most willing to collaborate with the German occupation forces. Now, in the case of the cemetery, what we see here is the dynamic taken to a, a, a further level because Jews um, become the victims not only of measures implemented by the German occupation forces, but by initiatives that are proposed by their Greek Christian neighbors. The destruction of the Jewish cemetery of Salonika, contrary to some popular depictions of the event, emerges at the initiative of local Greek Christians and not at the initiative of the German occupation forces. So the role of the local populations uh, become extremely crucial in determining the fate of Jews in the context of the Second World War and the Holocaust. You know, I know you mentioned at the beginning of our talk that when you started conducting this research, you reached out to the Salonika Jewish community, which now numbers around 1,000 people um, out of a previous century population of around 90,000. Do you have any sense um, today of 
an understanding of a sort of a Salonican Jewish diasporic community. Is there something that you feel like ties Salonican Jewry together beyond just being from that place in the pre-World War II moment in time? I think, well, you're, that's actually a question that I hope to explore in my next book. Oh, well, you can tell us about that then, too. <laughs> Uh, which is what you know one of the major impacts of the end of the Ottoman Empire and the rise of modern Greece um, and the incorporation of Salonika into Greece is that many Jews opt to leave and they migrate to places like New York. My family first settled in New, in, in Harlem uh, before uh, New Jersey, where I was uh, I was born. Uh, many Salonican Jews go to go to Paris. Um, many Salonican Jews, especially port workers and stevedores, go to Tel Aviv and they go to Haifa. And what they develop in their new places of residence is really a very strong and potent myth of Salonika as an, uh, an integrally Jewish site, a Jewish city. Now, Jewish intellectuals in Salonika itself are developing this rhetoric as a way to substantiate their claims that Jews belong in the city and they should continue to belong there. But in the Salonican diaspora, Jews from the city refer to their city as la madre de Israel, the, the mother of Israel, as la, pat, la, la, la patria madre, the motherland. And they think of themselves as the hijos exilados, as the exiled sons of the city, a city to which they really feel a strong sense of connection and a strong sense of pride. We have some examples of Salonican Jews where they go, where they go in different places. One figure, one intellectual says, you know, the, uh, the Salonican Jew abroad is as proud to be part of the Salonican Jewish community as a citizen of Rome was proud to be the subject of, uh, of the, of the Caesar in the Roman Empire. And we can see that this sense of Salonicanness becomes um, further expressed in the kinds of institutions that Salonican Jews create abroad. They create the Salonican Brotherhood of America, the uh, Association Amical des Israelites Saloniques, the uh, friendly association of Salonican Jews in Paris, or Ole Salonique, the Salonican. Uh, immigrant society in in Tel Aviv. Now, what happens is after the war, and these are some of the features that I want to explore in my next book, how does this Salonic and Jewish diaspora work, the local identity being perpetuated, what we find today is that that sense of Salonicanness is very much attenuated among the descendants of Salonican Jews across the globe partly because there is no motherland that exists. There is no Salonican, uh, Jewish Salonika to which they can refer, to which they can gain sustenance in the way that previous generations could. And because the, the powers and processes of assimilation and integration have compelled descendants of Salonican Jews to think of themselves either more broadly as Sephardic Jews, more broadly as Jews, or more broadly as citizens or members of the nations in which, uh, in which they live. And so uh, the sense of Salonicanness is is really a, a, a faint echo of what it once was, or at least this is my supposition. And I hope that in my next book, I'll be able to um, better hone in 
on those particular dynamics, not only historically, but in our uh, present day. Well, I am really very much looking forward to reading that as it develops. Um, Devin, thanks again for being on the show today. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you very much, Shira. Well, listeners, please check out Jewish Salonika Between the Ottoman Empire and Modern Greece by Devin Nahr, published in 2016 by Stanford University Press. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.